Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. Welcome, I'm Anderson Cooper in New York. Hey, and I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. This is the CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. It's our seventh one in as many weeks. Tonight, uh, White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Dr. Deborah Burks is going to be here to answer your questions. She was also part of the process that led up to today's announcement by the White House of suggestions for a phased lifting of some of the disease-fighting restrictions that so many of us have been living under. It's, of course, up to each state to actually decide when and how to lift any restrictions. President Trump says he wants it to start happening just two weeks from now, May 1st, or even sooner in some places. We'll talk to Dr. Burks about that, as well as whether the federal government is prepared to provide states with tools like widespread testing to do it safely without risking a second wave of the outbreak. Also tonight, taking your questions, Democratic presidential frontrunner and former vice president Joe Biden. Plus, we're going to talk with Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg, along with his wife, Dr. Priscilla Chan, on how Facebook and the Chan-Zuckerberg Initiative are working now to combat the coronavirus. At the bottom of your screen, as always, you'll see our social media scroll. You can tweet us your questions with hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. A lot of you uh, have also sent in video questions, and we'll try to get to as many of those as we can. We also have reports from around the country and around the world on the fight against the virus and, of course, the effort uh, to get back to business. We're going to start right where, where the country is now, as new cases are plateauing, even going down in some key hotspots. But at the same time, the death toll does keep climbing. In fact, it's nearly doubled in the week since our last town hall, making the search for a return to some kind of normal, whatever that may mean, uh, such a tough slog on a bitter road. We are getting some new details about what life will look like when things begin to reopen radically different. The president continues to suggest May 1st, that's just a few weeks from now, for a possible reopening of the country. The CDC director warns that we should expect a second wave of coronavirus infections in the fall. There are now more than 650,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus in the United States. More than 32,000 people have died in less than two months since the first death from COVID-19 in the U.S. on February 29th. But there are signs the number of cases is leveling off in some states, and there's more focus on when the U.S. might start to reopen. There's no doubt what we've seen over the last several days is a flattening out. Hopefully that trend will continue. Governors across the country are forming coalitions to figure out the next steps in opening up. California's governor warns of a new normal. You may be having dinner with a waiter wearing gloves, maybe a face mask, a dinner where the menu is disposable. 
A Harvard study says without a vaccine, social distancing measures may need to stay in place until 2022. Scientists at the National Institutes of Health say they're working on one that could be available as early as this fall. We are targeting fall for the emergency use. So that would be for healthcare workers and people who might be in constant contact and risk of being exposed over and over. If successful, it could be available to the wider public by spring of next year. But the situation remains extremely serious in places like New York and Detroit, where some of the bodies of the dead are overflowing morgues and hospitals. Images like these a reminder of the human cost of this pandemic. And it's with just that in mind and the sense of caution it evokes that we turn to the question of where we stand and whether the suggestions unveiled today for easing some restrictions and phases and places with state governors taking the lead and implicitly the responsibility are realistic or not. Sanjay? Yeah, we see the numbers. Everyone's paying attention to the numbers. The number of deaths sadly continues to go up, but we are hearing of progress, Anderson. Uh, there's plateaus, even some places where the rate of infection is starting to go down. Uh, we see that. We know that. We also hear that maybe there's some promise around a vaccine, as you just showed in that piece, a vaccine possibly er- uh, available to the general public as early as next spring. That would change everything. But then there's a lot that we still don't know. We're now learning that people who are pre-symptomatic can actually spread this virus more than even when they get sick. Before they develop symptoms might be the, the, the time where they spread this the, the most. And also uh, we're hearing you know, about what the country might look like as we start to reopen. We're still starting to learn about that as well, Anderson. Also, you know, there's every epidemiologist and scientist, we've discussed testing, testing, contact tracing, testing, contact tracing, different forms of testing, antibody testing, uh, you know, testing people who are asymptomatic in order to get the country back to work. Didn't hear a lot about that uh, from the White House today. It's not in their phased plan. They, well, they, they talk a, about, a bit about the fact that the states, this is a, a core state responsibility for the states to be able to have efficient and safe testing. But, you know, I think that the practically speaking, we always focus so much on the numbers, but I think the question that people probably should be asking themselves who are watching is right now, if I needed to get tested, do I know who to call, where to go, how I'd get my results? Everybody in the country is going to need to be able to answer that question, Anderson. If you go into a place of business, if you go into a place, uh, a restaurant, you know, whatever it might be, there may be these additional sort of protocols in order to make sure that people aren't, you know, to try and reduce the spread of the virus as much as possible. That's got to be a thing that's part of coming out of the backside of this curve. Uh, We'll have a lot more about testing throughout the next two hours. I want to get to our reporters around the globe now, starting with Erica Hill, who has more on the guidelines from the White House and how they may work. Erica? So there are actually three phases to these guidelines, Anderson, although it's important to point out before you even get to phase one, there are some criteria that need to be met. There needs to be a sustained decrease in cases for 14 days. There needs to be available testing, as you were just talking about with Sanjay, also an available supply of PPE, and hospitals need to be at a pre-crisis level. So once that's met, there are these criteria for both, or guidelines, I should say, for both individuals and employers, three different phases. In this first phase, individuals are told they should continue to maximize physical distancing when they're out, limit gatherings to groups of 10 or less, and also limit non-essential travel. As you move into phase two for individuals, the recommendations are that vulnerable individuals should continue to shelter in place. Social meetings, you'll notice the increase here in the number of people, should be limited to um, 50 people or less, and non-essential travel 
resumes. And then when you move into phase three, the recommendations uh, are that uh, vulnerable individuals can actually resume their public interactions and low risk populations uh, should consider minimizing the time that they spend in really crowded environments, Anderson. And, and Erica, when you, when you look at all those various criteria, I mean, you're in New York, when, when could a place like New York or New York City possibly even go into phase one where some stuff starts to reopen? I mean, it's, you know, honestly, Sanjay, it's hard to imagine that happening. We, we know the president was saying some states could be in phase one tomorrow. New York is certainly not one of those states. Governor Cuomo today extending New York pause here through May 15th. And the governor continues to point out without the testing that you have talked so much about, without a vaccine, it's still impossible to know who can be out and about. And also, he says, they still need to assess which businesses uh, could open safely. So there is a lot of work still to be done here. Uh, Erica Hill, Erica, thanks. I want to go next to China, which has come under broader suspicion for its lack of transparency and questions about the virus's possible origin. Our David Culver is in Shanghai for us. So, David, let's talk about the the origin of the virus in, in China. We spoke last night about a, an Associated Press investigation. CNN is investigating whether the virus right. you know, came out of a lab. What more do do we know at this point? Well, that investigation is something that uh, U.S. intelligence officials have told CNN is one of the things they're looking into as a possible theory in how this all started. And, of course, the Chinese, from really the start of them making this public, have directed our attention to that wet market, the Wuhan seafood market, and that was seen as really the epicenter of all of this. Now, with this new investigation that's apparently underway by U.S. officials, it seems that they're looking into the potential that this started in a lab and then spread outside of that. And, and CNN has been reporting that they don't believe the U.S., that is, that this was done in some sort of bioweapons fashion. However, it, it does raise a lot of questions as to <clears throat> how much transparency they're getting here uh, from the Chinese government in particular. And you mentioned that AP report because that brings up some more concerns, Anderson, in particular, how things were handled early on and what could have been done, perhaps, uh, that uh, would have maybe stopped the spread of this, in particular over six days. So you're looking at January 14th to January 20th. Now, according to the Associated Press, there was a teleconference on January 14th in which health officials made known to top government officials the potential severity of this outbreak. What we saw publicly from the 14th up until the 20th was that things were downplayed significantly here. In fact, we even on the 19th, five days after that call, had one of the leading health officials saying that everything was preventable, controllable, and not contagious. It was only until the next day did things take a dramatic turn, and they did admit that there is likely human-to-human -human transmission. And so the people ask, you know, why do we look at this with such skepticism? And I think it's important because if we're looking at China as the bellwether of what the rest of the world is going to be going through, we need to know truthfully how it's been handled and how the rest of the world should be stepping forward if they're looking to see some sort of progress in all of this, Anderson, mm -hmm. Sanjay. Yeah, and of course, we got to be able to, to trust what's coming out of China if it's going to be the bellwether. But what, David, what does this mean um, in terms of where, where China and the United States are right now? At one point, they're actually helping each other fight the pandemic. Obviously, there's been a lot of criticism lately. Uh, where, where do things stand from, from your point of view? Uh, you know, Sanjay, I've been reflecting on this a lot because I think this is a, a really dire situation that perhaps 
will go past this outbreak. And I think what we are seeing here is the potential decoupling of the world's two largest economies. And, and you notice it mostly from the ground level at, for one, the, the rhetoric that we see, and it's really a blame rhetoric that's not only happening you know, at the politicized level, which is certainly an intense back and forth, but also amongst state media and on Chinese social media too. And it's echoed in U.S. social media, to be quite fair. Mm -hmm. But even walking around here, we've noticed an increased distrust of foreigners. And we've noticed that this is something that it is not backing down. It's only seeming to intensify with each passing day. So you can only imagine that if that's what's really playing out and that's where we're headed, any sort of cooperation in how to handle this is gonna fall through. And, and you don't even have agencies like the WHO, which certainly the US has backed down on funding and, and puts a lot of question and skepticism in to be able to be that overarching power to say, let's see how these two economies and these two uh, countries can work together at this. It, it's becoming really a difficult situation that's uh, getting worse with each passing day, it seems. Hmm. David Culver. David, thank hey, you David. very much from Shanghai. Europe next, where some countries are starting to cautiously ease restrictions, but others, notably the United Kingdom, have just extended them. Joining us now from London, CNN Chief International Anchor, Christian Amanpour. Christian, uh, thanks for joining us. I want to start with the easing of restrictions in some places. Where and, and, and mm -hmm. where? what are they doing? Well, we've been reporting over the last couple of days that places like Austria and Denmark have been slowly reopening. But now Germany, from April 20th, is going to start to slowly reopen some non-essential businesses, and very specifically, only businesses that are about 800 square meters in, in, uh, you know, in size, and they're not going to be opening restaurants and gyms and cinemas and sports and all of that. That's not going to happen. But early May, they're going to start school again, and they're starting at the older age, at the high school age for schools. So they believe that their very, very intensive early action, testing, tracing, isolating, has allowed them to keep this uh, pandemic in their nation under control. Yes, they've had infections, but their mortality rate has been dramatically less than practically anywhere else in Europe by a huge factor. And so, you know, they had ICU beds, they had a huge amount of infrastructure and ventilators and the whole lot. I spoke to the health minister today uh, and they say, well, now it's gonna be a new normal and we're gonna have to reassess in two weeks, but from April 20th, they'll start some non-essential businesses and then May 2nd, the schools. Mm. And I think everybody should be watching Germany. And, and, and Christian, you know, a lot of comparisons drawn between the United States and Italy. I mean, there's other countries that are at the other end of the spectrum, so to speak. What about them? What, what do you think is next for them? Well, Italy's been, you know, seeing, as you've been reporting, of course, intensively, you know, a, a drop off in the number of infections and a, and a more of a stabilization. I think one of the things, whether it's Italy, you know, there was a G7 call today. President Trump was on a conference call with Italy and Germany and France and Canada and all the major mm -hmm. um, allies. And they come to the conclusion in this over and over again that there needs to be a global sustained effort to fix this. There absolutely has to be. And to that point, they reasserted uh, their support for the WHO. The German uh, health minister said to me that, you know, he doesn't think that it's the right time now to either be defunding the WHO, which is the only international organization dealing with it, not only in the developed world, but soon to be the only one in the developing world. So he said, you know, this is a setback, this withdrawal of money, and it's about people's lives. So politics shouldn't be involved here. And, and all the other allies gave their support for the WHO at this time as well. 
Christian Amanpour. Uh, thanks so much, Christian, as always. Mm -hmm. Joining us next is White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks. We'll be right back. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Well, we laid out the, uh, the news at the top of the hour. The president unveiling possible guidelines for lifting coronavirus restri restrictions state by state in phases. It's, of course, up to the states to decide how and when they actually start lifting those restrictions. Right now, we want to talk more about just what that means with one of the key advisors in drafting the plan. Dr. Deborah Burks is the White House Cor uh, Coronavirus Response Coordinator. In addition, she serves as coordinator of U.S. government activities to combat HIV AIDS and a State Department special representative for global health diplomacy. Dr. Burks, thanks so much for being with us. The first time in the town hall, we really appreciate it. Um, just from a, a logistical standpoint, are individual states, you think, ready with enough equipment, tests, supplies, um, you know, people to actually do real serious contact tracing to begin doing this? I think there's two really critical pieces there. One is mapping every single platform that can run these tests. And that's what we've spent the last week doing to really work with governments and work with governors and mayors to really understand the depth and breadth of equipment that can run these tests in their state and in their cities. And that's been really critical. And then we're marrying that up with CDC. CDC already has about 500 plus people on the ground in many of the states. They will be ensuring that there's people in every state to really support the local governments and the state public health officials to really analyze each one of these gating criteria and determine exactly where they are and what needs to be done. Uh, we're going to talk a little, little bit more about testing, uh, Dr. Burks, and thank you, by the way, for your service. We really appreciate it. Um, but the contact tracing, though, I've heard estimates that, you know, you could need hundreds of, of thousands of people to adequately do contact tracing. Now we're learning that people may spread this even before they have symptoms. You know, in the pre-symptomatic phase, they could be more contagious. Do we, do we have enough infrastructure to contact trace the way that we need to? I think that's why the criteria that you can see the gates that are uh, that the federal government has recommended are fairly strict. And that's to give states really the time to really set up exactly how they're going to co contact trace with the CDC in the background as supporting. And I think those two pieces together will really need to move forward over the next few weeks as the states move through and really decrease the number of cases. And again, I want to just start by saying we know mortality is a lagging indicator, and we know that that's going to continue as it did last week into this week. I mean, is the, uh, and this may not be in your, your purview, but is, you know, if a state is wanting to hire, you know, a thousand people or two thousand people to do contact tracing with the public health department and quickly train them and, and get them to do that, is there money that the federal government will give to the state to do that? Well, I think, you know, in the CARE Act and even the Act for Phase 1, there was funding given to CDC for this very reason, to really strengthen the public health responsiveness at the state level. And that's really going to be critical, both for right now and potential for a reoccurrence in the fall, to make sure we're really ready, because then we're going to have both the combination of flu and COVID. And so we really not only have to have testing and really working closely with the states, but we really have to make sure we can contact trace rapidly. 
And Dr. Brooks, you know, um, obviously, you know, um, people, including yourself and Dr. Fauci, have said testing in the beginning at least was inadequate. As we go forward, if you look at the state core responsibilities, it says that they have to have safe and efficient testing. But we're hearing from states that that they, you know, they don't have the capacity to do this. They need help from the federal government, just in terms of the equipment, for example. Who, whose responsibility is it now, going forward, to make sure everyone who needs to be tested can be tested? The states or the federal government? So we have, a, at the task force level, we have a federal task force that's really working on testing strategy in partnership with the states and local governments. And together, this isn't possible unless we work as a seamless team. So we're working with them to identify all the laboratories, all the things that they need, and they are working very seamlessly to work on getting those things. If you see what FDA has done, just in the last three weeks, we've moved from that nasopharyngeal swab to a, a, a single polyester swab, and now the FDA is working very closely to see whether cotton Q-tip-like swabs can be utilized. We've moved from viral transport media all the way to normal saline. So these kinds of changes have really come to come to be possible because the FDA has been hearing from the states about what their problems are and looking for alternatives and really doing testing with the commercial labs to see what else can be utilizable. And so I know it's been dynamic. It continues to be a work in progress, but it's really a partnership between the state and the federal government. But a lot of the states are saying I mean, the governor is saying we don't have the resources to hire a thousand or ten thousand people to do contact tracing or to have, you know, uh, very fast testing on hundreds of thousands of people who, you know, want to want to go back to work. And companies want rapid testing to see if employees, you know, can go back to work. Yeah, thank you, Anderson. I think your key statement in that was rapid testing. And I think really figuring out what combination of point of care tests, and we do have some of those now, to medium throughput tests, to really industry level testing where you want to test tens or hundreds of people at once. And what I've discovered in HIV AIDS is you really have to match the need to the capacity and really working through that, ensuring all of those are in alignment. And that's part of what states are working for through right now is to really identify where all that equipment is, where the point of care tests are, and how we need to work together to really create that alignment. I know it seems daunting at times, but I've done this all over the world in resource limited settings and we've been able to really align need with capacity so that you can really respond to what the communities need. You know, Dr. Burks, just, just a scenario. Let's say Anderson is, is going back to work at some point because New York is reopening. I've heard scenarios from public health officials that people might need to get tested every week, even more frequently than that, before they could walk into the building. First of all, is that could that be the case that we need to be tested on a regular basis? And... Again, do, do states or businesses or whoever would be doing that at this point have the capacity to do that kind of testing? 
Well, let's say we had 140 million workers in the United States. There is no disease where we test 140 million workers on a weekly basis. And I think that's why we have to be strategic and smart enough that we combine surveillance opportunities in the community because the virus doesn't come from nowhere. It has to actually be in the community. And so that's why you have to really have a combination of sentinel surveillance, some early warning systems like the syndromic and the influenza-like illness combined with testing. Any one piece by itself will not be able to accomplish what we need. And so that's why the focus is on bringing together the talents of the state with the with the surveillance and the activities that we can really understand, because states have used these for decades, really understanding influenza-like illness and syndromic early alert systems. Using that early alert system with sentinel surveillance and with testing and contact tracing, all three of those have to come together and be designed in a way so that that worker will know that there's not coronavirus in the community. And in addition, if it is, then all of that contact tracing and, and activity wraps around to really surge both personnel uh, and testing capacity into that particular community. We've got questions from uh, our viewers. Um, this is uh, from Mo in Pittsburgh, New York. He sent in a video to listen. Both South Korea and China are reporting multiple cases of patients who recovered from the coronavirus tested negative, then recontacted the virus. If that's the case, what's the implication of it on the ongoing effort to develop vaccines and antibody tests? Dr. Burks? This is, yeah, this is a really important question. So the, all of the recent data talks about finding RNA fragments. We don't know if that's full-length RNA. We found that in other diseases that people will shed as cells are broken down, partial elements of RNA. Remember, the tests that we're using are highly sensitive. They can find small amounts of RNA. And so I think what's the, the jury is really out to understand, is there late shedding in someone who recovers and have antibodies of actually full-length infectious um, virus. And that, that's a question that's still outstanding and hasn't been answered in the studies to date, although people are really working on that now and culturing the virus and see if it's, that potential exists. And then and, and I guess the worst case reason that somebody would have uh, been diagnosed with the virus again is because they got actually reinfected. It wasn't a breakdown of the virus. It wasn't a reactivation. They actually got reinfected. Could that, could that be the case? You know, of course, you know, in, in biology, you never want to say that that's not possible. I mean, certainly um, coming out of a field where we don't have an effective model of effective immunity, seeing people develop an immune response and recover and have those two linked, at least in the, in the progress of disease mm -hmm. we've seen to date, is reassuring to me. But there's always that small perchance person who doesn't make effective antibody or for another reason doesn't have effective neutrophils or an effective immune resistance or, or points out a little defect um, that wasn't ever discovered in their genetic response, their immune response to a specific virus. Those outliers always exist, but right now we don't have an evidence that that's a common, common thing that we see. 
part, part of my ignorance, I, I, was, I studied political science, and I'm still not even sure what political science means, and I, real science I don't know much about. But so just in layman's terms, d the bottom line is we don't know 100% for sure if somebody is immune after getting the virus. Is that correct? What we have the example of is the biology of someone getting infected, recovering, and developing antibody. And so in traditional infectious disease, that is uh, the progress you would normally see and that that antibody would be effective in controlling subsequent infections if the agent is the same. And, and this there shared um, proteins that are then that antibody can bind to and prevent reinfection. I don't ever want to say never, but that's what we're seeing in most patients is that they recover and they have antibody. I think the other piece of this is we know now from the early studies with the plasma, it does look like the plasma, although it's very early and anecdotal, we'll get some hints about whether the antibodies that are coming from recovered patients are helpful in mm. people who are fighting the disease in that moment. And that can help really focus you on understanding that that antibody is important in immunity. Uh, this is another question. This is from Beth Shaw in Connecticut. My husband had tested positive last Wednesday. On day eight, from presumed exposure, he has now just lost his sense of taste completely. Can you tell by this symptom if it's the start, middle, or end of the virus? Is there a set order of events and symptoms? You know, that's a great question, and I wish we knew the answer of it, answer to it. And because we don't know what percent of individuals are asymptomatic, we can't really tell you what the standard course is. What have we found out that 50% of patients that were infected were asymptomatic? Then it would be very difficult to say what a middle beginning and end looks like. At least we're hearing from cases that, that we know of that some individuals appear to do get better and start to improve at day seven, eight, or nine, and then have a very re resurgence of a very rocky course thereafter. And trying to understand that, I mean, we're, you see the new reports about maybe it's involving cardiac or renal or other organs in the body. These are the pieces that really need to be understood so that we know how to bring therapeutics in a clear way to help every client that we're serving. Uh, Dr. Burks, we, we appreciate what you're doing and uh, we appreciate you talking to us tonight and um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Burks. I want to take a quick break. More of your questions next. Also, we have new numbers about the course this pandemic may take, numbers that may determine how soon states can reopen or begin to reopen. The director of the institute that publishes the model, which has been cited by the White House, joins us next. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Welcome back to our CNN Global Town Hall. In a moment, more viewer questions. First, a lot to talk about tonight. The push for states to reopen their economy is always a concern, of course, of what happens if we reopen too early. Joining Sanjay and I to talk about it is Dr. Chris Murray. Dr. Murray is the director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. It's his institute's coronavirus modeling that the White House decided as it develops policy to confront the pandemic. Tonight, Dr. Murray has some new projections about the course the pandemic may take. So uh, I know the data is still being processed and the models will be completed late tonight. What, what can you tell us? 
Well, uh, we've made a big push to try to take into account uh, how people actually move around, like direct measurement through cell phone data. And there's, there's a bunch of providers out there sharing cell phone uh, movement data, of course, anonymized to protect people's privacy. But what that tells us is that there's been more social distancing across the country than I think we expected, even in some of the states that haven't had as hard, as strong mandates. So that's going to factor into our, our new estimates that we'll come out with tomorrow. It uh, looks like a number of states in the South, for example, will have smaller epidemics than we were expecting. What, what are your current, um, the, I know you'll have new numbers to, later tonight. What are your current numbers about your projection for the path this may take, the, the death toll? Well, our numbers have been in, uh, you know, around about 68,000 deaths uh, total, uh, with you know a peak happening about now nationally, but with different peaks around the country, and that's going to be really important for this idea of rolling opening, and and certainly we're trying to get a deeper understanding of where states are still on the upswing and where states are on, on the downswing. Well, mm. One of the things, uh, Professor Murray, that's going to be happening now, I guess probable cases are also going to be counted, not just confirmed cases, but probable cases. And I remember that happening in China as well, and you all of a sudden saw a, a significant increase in the number of cases. H- how are you going to sort of incorporate that into your, into your modeling? Well, I think five states so far have started to report probable cases. I'm sure it'll, it'll spread. Uh, we're trying to look at that because I think uh, the confirmed cases may be at the low end. The counting all probable cases may be a, a sort of an overcount. Uh, a bigger issue for sort of getting the trajectory and helping hospitals plan for the surge uh, is that if you count all those missing deaths in one day and put them out, it really can throw off our understanding of the trajectory. So we're trying to dig into the details from each state mm. and sort of tease that apart. In, in the no numbers that are coming out, the, if the death rate, uh, if, if there's more social distancing in southern states than expected, would the death rate for those states also decrease and therefore the overall death rate prediction for the entire country might be lower as well? I think so. Uh, we're certainly they're going to go down for a number of states in the south. Uh, places you know, like Florida will, will certainly come down. The other phenomenon that, that's sort of a little bit of a counterbalance to that is that uh, places like New York seem to be stuck at the peak for longer than we originally expected. Mm. So, yes, overall, nationally, the number's probably going to come down. But there is this sort of phenomenon of a longer peak. We're seeing this in Italy and parts of Spain as well. And it's not something that I think anybody expected to see, that people would, instead of two or three days at the peak, they're spending a longer period, and then cases will start to come down. Uh, Professor Murray, there's this phrase, I'm sure you've heard it, and I'm sure you hate it, says all models are wrong, but some are useful. with regard to this model, what, what is the variability? I mean, how, how precise, when we hear these numbers like you just gave Anderson, what degree of confidence do we have in those numbers? Well, you know, all models are wrong, but uh, some, I, I couldn't agree more with the statement. Because, but I think the key thing is to be useful, particularly for the, our hospitals and state, you know, authorities trying to plan for the next phase. What we're trying to do, like a good weather forecast, is taking all the data and keep the models as up-to-date as possible to reflect all the new insights that are coming in from the data. I think, you know, this is a new pandemic, and you can't expect that at the beginning you know everything that's going to play out. You know, why are we seeing such an epidemic in New York 
And we haven't seen it in other large cities like with, it, it, it commensurate to what's happened in New York. So there's things that we, we don't really have an answer. And so we just want to have the data drive the, the forecasts. Mm. Uh, Dr. Murray, uh, we appreciate what you're doing, and uh, we've been talking to you a lot and uh, hope to continue. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cheers. Yeah. Uh, a reminder at the bottom of the screen, you'll see our social media scroll that shows the questions people are, are asking. You can tweet us your questions with the hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN uh, Facebook page. Back now with Sanjay. And I want to bring in Dr. Lena Wen, an emergency room physician, former Baltimore health commissioner, and a new mom. <laughs> we haven't seen you, or I haven't seen you since uh, you had a baby. Congratulations. That's right. Um, I have. Thank you very much. Baby Isabel is doing very well. Thank you. That's great. Uh, so what uh, what needs to happen in your view before, you know, reopening schools and businesses and the like? Because we heard from the White House today, it's going to be up to the governors. We didn't hear much really from test about testing and contact tracing uh, as perhaps one might expect we would have. Well, Anderson, we definitely need those components. So we need three things in order to reopen safely. One is we do need widespread testing. We need testing for everyone who needs a test, who has symptoms. We need testing for everyone who wants a test and wants to know whether they can go back to work or school safely. And we need testing for surveillance so that we really understand what is happening in communities around the country. And then we also need that public health infrastructure that you mentioned to do contact tracing. And we need for our healthcare system to be stabilized, not only so that we can treat every patient with COVID-19 who comes in, but also so that we can treat people with routine health conditions like diabetes and heart disease who are now having trouble accessing the healthcare system. What Dr. Murray said, though, I mean, it sounds that sounds like a positive development that social distancing uh, was being uh, more rigorously adhered to than perhaps predicted in some states, uh, even in states that, that didn't have huge numbers of uh, of cases and that therefore the the overall projected death toll may may lower I think it's wonderful that the American people are heeding the advice of public health experts. But this is not a time for us to celebrate yet, because even if we have reached a peak in some places, there are many other communities around the country that have yet to see their peak and don't even know the true rate of community spread there. And we don't want to let down our guard too soon because we keep on talking about this possible second wave. Well, the last thing that we want to do is to loosen our restrictions too soon and that we have a second wave of deaths. And then we wonder what were all of the sacrifices that we made, what was that for? And so all the decisions have to continue to be made based on science and data and evidence. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's go to viewer questions. Uh, this is uh, Susie in Bakersfield, California, sent in uh, this question. Is there a way to clean or desanitize N95 masks at home so that they can be reused? I found a couple of packaged N95 masks like this left over from past plumbing work at my house. Um, I have worn one of the masks like three times when I've gone out for essentials. Is there anything that I can do to take precautions to safely reuse these masks for the rare times that I do have to go out? Um, would something like hydrogen peroxide be effective to use, or are there any other household products? Dr. Wen? 
So N95 masks are not meant to be re-sanitized and reused. Although because of the shortage in healthcare settings, there are studies that are ongoing about how they can be sanitized for healthcare workers. For non-healthcare workers, the advice is to wear something like a cloth mask, mm -hmm. and that can be washed and reused very easily. You can just throw it into the laundry and it could be reused. Just remember that no matter what type of mask you use, to always wash your hands well with soap and water afterwards to avoid spreading any virus. Uh, this next question uh, came in via Twitter with our, uh, our hashtag CNN uh, Town Hall. It's there at the bottom uh, of your screen. It reads, are there breathing exercises we can do to strengthen our lungs if we are not currently sick? Sanjay, could there be breathing exercises that help? You know who, who's talking about this a lot is Chris. our colleague. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. He talks about the breathing exercises. I don't know that there's, a, there's formal sort of breathing exercises that are recommended across the board, but I have heard this now from several doctors that they do recommend some sort of breathing exercise, different maybe for different people. One thing I found really interesting, Anderson, is that people who have become ill, uh, you know, maybe even needing to go to the hospital, one of the things that doctors are doing for these patients, uh, other, you know, maybe not necessarily putting a breathing tube in, but just having them lie prone on their, on their uh, belly instead of on their back to try and actually create more lung capacity. Sounds like a very simple thing, mm. but um, for some reason, uh, just placing, they call it proning the patient, putting the patient prone seems to have an impact. So breathing exercises, increasing lung capacity certainly can be very valuable. Um, Dr. Wen, Cynthia in Arizona sent in this video. Good evening. My name is Cynthia Kentu and I'm 31 weeks pregnant with my fourth child. Is there any evidence to suggest that there is antibody protection for a newborn if a mother has been exposed to COVID-19, either across the placenta during gestation or through breast milk? That's a great question, Dr. Wen. Well, first, congratulations, Cynthia. I uh, appreciate your question, and I've been thinking a lot about this as a new mother myself. And um, there is a lot that's not yet known about COVID-19 and pregnancy. We do know that the antibody to coronavirus does cross the placenta, and there are studies ongoing now to look at how much of the antibody, if any, is present in breast milk. There is a question that remains, though, because even if the newborn is able to get those antibodies in some way, we still don't know if that gives that newborn immunity, meaning that the newborn somehow is less affected by coronavirus or gets a less severe form of it, that we just don't know yet. Mm. And so in the meantime, we should consider pregnant women and babies to be particularly medically vulnerable, and so they should take extra precautions. Mm. Uh, Sanjay Rona uh, sent in this video, let's, look. let's watch. Hi, my name is Rona Lashinsky. I'm from Walnut Creek, California. And my question is this, the public has been advised repeatedly to use soap and water for washing our hands rather than relying on hand sanitizer. So I was wondering why not use soap and water to disinfect household surfaces such as kitchen countertops and packaging rather than relying on disinfecting wipes and sprays. Thanks for taking my question. Sanjay? Yeah, Rona, this is, a, this is probably one of our most common questions, and the answer is yes. I mean, you can use soap and water uh, in the same way that you might use some of these other household cleaners. It can be very effective. We know about that for your hands, but uh, for, other, for other parts of your house as well, it can actually do the job. 
Um, just a, a question going across the screen about making your own mask. Uh, last week, you showed us how to make your own mask. Your daughter made me an amazing one, which I am eager. I literally have been checking uh, the, uh, the waiting for the mail every single day. I've been day. tracking it, yes. Okay, good. I'm hoping, I'm very hopeful. Uh, this week, we asked if you could show us the, the effectiveness of cleaning with soap and water. Let's take a look. By now, you know that viruses, including the coronavirus, can live on surfaces for a while several hours, even several days, which means we have to be cleaning all the time. And we also get a lot of emails saying, look, I'm running out of these cleaners. Well, the good news is that not only is soap and water, which is in here, a good alternative, many scientists argue it's actually a better alternative. Pally Thorderson has got a great Twitter thread about this from Sydney. He reminds us that viruses are fundamentally just three things. They're made up of RNA, proteins, which are the building blocks, and this lipid envelope. Well, it turns out that soap, especially when you put it on surfaces like this, can actually break apart that lipid envelope, causing the virus to be destroyed, and pretty easily. Dr. John Williams from the University of Pittsburgh said, it's kind of like thinking about how you'd clean a buttery dish. You probably wouldn't use just water, you probably wouldn't use an alcohol-based sanitizer, but soap and water does the job. So just soap and water. Don't forget your high-touch surfaces either, like your phone. Make sure to clean those. I would use lots of soap and water on that. And even things like light switches and doorknobs. This is how you actually prevent yourself from touching the virus, touching yourself, and getting infected. Hope that helps. That's great, because it's hard to find you know, right. all this sanitizer stuff. Uh, Sanjay, next week, I'm hoping you make a tutorial about how to give yourself a haircut, because last night I oh, no. took a, 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 a razor and uh, buzzed my head, and I gave myself a giant Dude. bald spot <laughs> over here, which I find very, I, I missed, I thought it was a, a seven and it was a five, and I, I don't know. Yeah, so I now I've been walking around all day with like my hand on my head. This is whole like staring straight at the camera thing's working yeah, straight, out for you. It's, it's fine straight on. I just have to be seen only this way because as soon as it all gives it away, right? Wow. Right I hope that grows yeah. back in. I think it will. Not, not sure, but I think it will. Yeah. Maybe that's for next week and do a tutorial. Right. Uh, Dr. Wen, this is a, a, a William in Illinois sent in the, uh, this video. Let's take a look. I'm a veteran, and a couple weeks ago, I received an email from the Navy Exchange where I shop. They asked us not to use paper money or coins, as viruses tend to live on them for a long time. Why hasn't the public been warned of this also? Dr. Wen, what about that? Well, viruses can live on surfaces and objects, including on money, although your chance of actually getting COVID-19 from cash is probably very low. Remember that if you're touching cash to wash your hands well with soap and water, and if you can, go to use contactless methods of payment. Although also keep in mind that if you're handing your credit card to someone, that's also, you also have to wash your hands after that. And also if you're using your phone, but then you're touching your shopping cart and then your phone, you're also potentially infecting or you're also potentially transferring virus to your phone too. So wash your hands well with soap and water is the, is the most important mm. thing. Uh, Sanjay, uh, Jerry in Indianapolis sent in this video. Over the past years, there have been several viral outbreaks such as SARS, H1N1, Ebola, and MERS. All of them no longer appear to be ongoing issues. Is that because there are vaccines or antiviral drugs that control these viruses? I also don't remember these other viruses shutting down the economy. What is peculiar with the coronavirus that we need to practice such extreme social distancing? 
It's a very good question, Sanjay. It, it is a good question. So let, 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 it's a, and it's an involved answer, but let me just take SARS and H1N1, for example. SARS was a, uh, also a coronavirus, and it was a new virus at the time, 2003. Uh, in the end, we know that SARS ended up uh, infecting 8,000 people roughly around the world. Uh, just 8,000 total and causing around 800 deaths. So very high fatality rate, but didn't turn out to be very contagious. H1N1 was very contagious. It infected some 60 million people in the United States alone within a year, but it was far less lethal than, than the flu even, like a third as, as lethal as the flu. So the difference with this, and I think the reason there's been so, man, so many more measures is that this is both very contagious. One person can spread it to two or three, we think, and it appears to be far more lethal than the flu as well. So uh, both those things in combination, I think, are why we're taking this so seriously. You want to try and decrease uh, how many people get infected and, uh, because of that fatality rate. Hmm. Um, Dr. Wen, thank you so much, and I'm so glad uh, you and, and the baby are, uh, are healthy and happy, and congratulations again. Thank you. Uh, much more of our global town hall ahead. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden joins us, as do Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Dr. Priscilla Chan. We'll also check in with Chris Cuomo. As you may know, his wife now has been diagnosed with coronavirus. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Welcome again to the CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. It's our seventh uh, town hall. It's on a day that saw President Trump lay out some federal guidelines, suggestions for states to begin lifting outbreak fighting restrictions by or before May 1st, even as some states extended those measures for weeks beyond that already. New York and Los Angeles, Washington, D.C. as well. Also a day that saw the number of lost jobs in just the last four weeks hit 22 million. In this hour, uh, Democratic presidential candidate and former Vice President Joe Biden is going to be taking your questions. Also, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Dr. Priscilla Chan, will be joining us as well. Yeah, um, we're also going to talk to uh, Chris Cuomo uh, very shortly about how he is doing, how his family is doing. Uh, as you know, uh, yesterday he uh, uh, let people know that his wife has tested positive, so we want to uh, see how uh, is she is doing. Uh, Sanjay, just in terms of where we are in this, uh, a lot of emphasis today on discussion of how states may come back online, so to speak, uh, reopen in, in stages. We did not hear, though, much from the White House about testing. And clearly this president does not, you know, any time question he gets about, you know, are you going to push for more text, testing? Are you going to enable states? Are you going to give them the funding and, and mm -hmm. back them up and, and enable them to, to give more testing? He reverts back to saying, you know, we have the best test, we have the most tests, we have the greatest test, the most powerful tests, when in fact there clearly is not enough testing nationwide in, and even state by state. The, the, the thing that's so, so striking to me about this, uh, Anderson, is this is the fact that I think for people who, who are watching, they're saying we, we see that the tests are going up and then there's places where they can more easily get one. But the idea that someone who's worried about this, they think that may, they may have been infected or, you know, they, they're hearing that uh, pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic people can carry it and they're worried about their family members, whatever it may be. Do they know how to get tested right now? Can they get tested? Who would they call? Where would they go? How would it happen? That's the practicality of it. That's what 
it means to have widespread testing available. Doesn't mean, as Dr. Burke said, Anderson, that you know 325 million people are going to be tested. You can start to get an idea of what the country looks like, but we're not close to actually being able to have enough testing to understand where is and how far is spread is coronavirus in the mm. United States. We got to be able to answer that question. Yeah. Uh, in this hour, I said we're going to talk to Mark Zuckerberg, his wife's Dr. Uh, Priscilla Chan, also uh, former Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, right now, let's go to Chris Cuomo. Uh, Chris, um, how you doing? How's your family? How's your wife? Better than I deserve. Uh, this was tough for Christina to get it. Uh, and it's frustrating because it once again plays on like the name of this special tonight. Um, fact and fear. Uh, we have a lot of fear because we don't have a lot of facts. You know, last night we were celebrating um, how, oh, it turns out that you're more contagious before you're symptomatic. Oh, same night, um, my wife gets hit with coronavirus 17 days into my case. We have completely different symptoms, thank God. Uh, she's stronger than I am. She has a stronger immune system. She's got a stronger constitution and stronger character. Uh, but she lost her sense of smell and taste but no fever, sinus pressure in her head, a um, little bit of lethargy, and a little bit of uh, residual frustration at me because I'm, you know, almost certainly how she got sick. But here's the factor uh, on our learning curve. And families are hitting with this, guys, as you know, all over the country. Now you got two sick parents separately in quarantine. The one silver lining I thought would be that she and I could be together. No, why? Mm. Again, we don't know this BS about the antibodies and whether or not I'm immune, okay? Whether it's Anthony Fauci or anyone on down who does this will tell you they don't know that I have any immunity even if I have the antibodies and how it works and how long it would be. So my wife and I have to be separated for another two weeks, which means our house is dependent on a 17-year-old, my daughter, Bella, who's stepping up. But you'll, you may hear them because this is now Lord of the Flies in my house. <laughs> the kids are in control. Chris, I, I got to ask, and I don't, I don't know the answer, but just, just based on what you're saying, I'm just working this through in my head. So you and Christina both have tested positive. Uh, mm. You're both having symptoms. Um, so, and, and maybe I'm missing something here, but you guys can't be together now? I mean, I, mm -hmm. I understand that you needed to be isolated. She would need to be isolated. But if you both have it, why can't you, why can't you interact now? Well, I'm not a doctor, but here's what I've learned. Uh, oh, we had a doctor around. You, you, you know I love it. But I did stay at a Holiday Inn last night, and I had a couple of hallucinations that I was a brain surgeon. Um, so here's what they say. They don't know. And in the abundance of caution, I could get reinfected. So uh, they want us to stay separated. We do have completely different symptoms, which is, again, part of the weirdness. The kids, now anecdotally, Christina believes that at least two of them have had it in the last few months. Why? Well, we don't know, but atypically long duration sinus fever lethargy. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're gonna learn that coronavirus has been in this country since like October, that there have been cases. And as you guys both know, and I hear all the time from all over the country, how many people do you hear saying, I think I had it. I had this and this, I lost my sense of smell and this and that and that, but I never got tested. Um, those cases are like abounding all over the country. And I think that the frustration here is that we just don't know. I had a guy say to me today, Anderson, you'll find this uh, very interesting. So I have this low grade fever I can't beat. This guy calls me today and says, and he's a very big deal uh, in this field. 
why do you keep complaining about the fever? I said, because I want to get past it. Well, now I have the 72 hours of under 99 or so. So by CDC guidelines, I'm fine. That's not my baseline temperature. My baseline temperature is 97.6 or 8. He says, but you're going to have weeks of recovery from this where you'll have residual inflammation, um, fevers, sweats, uh, lung recovery, uh, maybe a change in O2 volume. I never heard of this before. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, oh, the recovery of this virus can be two to five weeks. We saw it with Ebola. We saw it with this. We mm. saw it with that. Nobody told us that. So now even though I'm better, and if they test me, they want to retest me now, I'll probably wait through the weekend to do it. Mm. Uh, and I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to give my plasma. I'm happy to give my blood. I hope there are antibodies. I hope there's information uh, for the clinicians in it. But if I test negative twice in 24 hours, but I still feel like crap for weeks and I can't do normal workouts and I, I get sweaty if I'm under lights or if I drink soup. He said, yeah, for weeks. Hmm. We don't know any of this. And that's scary. So, so Sanjay, in a case like that, would Chris, you know, if now Chris is living in a state uh, where people are going back to work, would Chris be expected to go back to, and I, I'm a hypothetical Chris, expected to go back to work? And would he still be, if he's having those, you know, uh, residual effects, is he still shedding virus? Yeah, I mean, a good, good question. We're all learning as we go along. But in, in, if Chris is having symptoms and, uh, you know, some of these respiratory symptoms, whatever they may be, then anytime anyone's having symptoms, they should not go back to work. But what I think what Chris is talking about, a lot of people are asking themselves this, okay, now I'm isolated. We should all be staying at home, first and foremost. But now I'm isolated within my home. When could I possibly come out of that? 72 hours, as Chris mentioned, without a fever. Uh, that's specific to that person. Uh, no more respiratory symptoms, or certainly improving of those, in at least seven days since your symptoms started. So, Unfortunately, Chris doesn't meet the at least the, the, the last two criteria yet. So keeping our fingers crossed, but there's, you know, it can take a while, which is something we're learning about this, right? I mean, Chris is experiencing it, but we're all learning about it together. Yeah, I mean, look, they don't really know. Uh, they're figuring out the standards as they go. Uh, I was listening to Dr. Burks, um, and look, I, I think that she's in earnest and giving you good answers. She did not answer your guys' questions about the testing protocols because oh, they yeah. don't know how to do it. And if you don't have a cure, and I know they're going to start doing antibody testing in like a month or so, but if you can't tell people that if you get it, we can keep you from dying. And see, that's another thing. All of this is an academic exercise and not important until you hear about that case tomorrow about the guy who's my age, who was healthy, who died somewhere, or the mom who was fine, who died, or the 60-year-old who all of a sudden crashed after a week of getting better. Every time we hear about just one of those, it's enough to put possibilities in your head that are panicking. They don't know how to keep us safe prophylactically. I don't care how you phase it back in. There's no such thing as separate circles in this society. Mm. There's intercourse on all levels. They open up Westchester, so those people aren't going to leave Westchester. You know, you open up a part of New York City, people aren't going to come in and out. We got to start answering more of these questions. The unknown is driving the fear. Yeah. Uh, Chris, I'm so sorry about Christina. I'm glad her symptoms, Me though, too. are not, not you. what yours were. Um, and by the way, if you need a haircut, uh, I have a little experience now, and uh, I'd be happy well, to come, you know, when you're let better. Let me tell you, don't do it. Don't do as it. you can see, I'm working the uh, Carol Brady look <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if you ever turn, Chris, but I gave myself a cut last night, and I gave myself a big ball spot right here. Oh, that's, uh, Anderson, yeah. now yeah. you will make that popular. 
And I will probably shave a hole in the like side a, of my I, head. I have like a peaky blinder haircut now. All right, Chris, thanks very much. Our best thanks, to Christina, Chris. all the family. Joining us now, Good Democratic presidential candidate, former Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, Mr. Vice President, thanks so much for being with us. How are you? How, how's your family? Well, thank God I'm doing well. And uh, I'm sorry about Christina. I, uh, I really am, Chris. You, uh, you've been through a lot. But I tell you what, you got a 17-year-old who's going to be able to handle it, and she's going to be better for it. So uh, anyway, I wish you the best of luck, pal. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing fine, uh, I, I think. I mean, uh, so far, so good. Listening to Chris, I'm not sure anymore. No, but all kidding aside, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm doing fine. My family is, uh, is in good shape, the best we know. Now, I, uh, I think I've mentioned to you before, I have two grandchildren, my, my deceased son, Bo, who live about, as the crow flies, about three-quarters of a mile from I mean, they come over every day and stand out off the off the back porch, and I bribe them with Hagen Dazs ice cream and throw down <laughs> the ice cream bars, and we talk for a half hour or so. But I'm not able to hug him yet, and I've got a son uh, and, uh, and and a new grandchild out in California, and I've got a daughter who's a, a, a social worker running a boys and girls club project down in Florida. And I got a son-in-law who is separated from her because she's down there and he's a, he, he's a surgeon up in uh, Jefferson Hospital. So mm. my kids are sort of all, all over. Yeah. L- looking at the president's new plan for reopening the country in phases, uh, again, it's up to, the, to the, the states. What do you think of what you heard today from, from the White House? Well, I, I wouldn't call it a plan. I, I think what he's done, he's kind of punted. Uh, he's decided that he's not, he doesn't have the right to make the call for the country. And he talks about phases that, in a generic sense, seem to me, from all I've learned and all I've listened in my morning briefs from the docs I talk to, uh, is, not, uh, is, is not irrational. But it, it, it doesn't give you any hard guidelines. And one of the things that I think we keep coming back to, and I've spent this morning talking to the docs that, that used to work with Sanjay in our last administration and heads of other entities, uh, that, uh, um, you know, it gets down to testing. It's about uh, testing, tracing, and treatment. And, uh, and still, we're way behind on the testing piece. And I don't, quite, I don't quite understand why we're taking so long to do the kinds of things that, that have to be done. Um, you know, there's a, uh, during World War Two, uh, you know, where Roosevelt came up with a thing uh, that uh, you know was totally different than a than the, the it's called he called it the you know the World War Two he had the world the, the War Production Board. Well, I don't know why we don't set up something like a pandemic production board, where we open up uh, you know things that oversee you know surging production to test kits and and lab supplies, coordinating the distribution to states, identifying and testing testing sites and sufficient, you know, uh, trade personnel to staff these things, train personnel and ensuring adequate lab capacity and clear guidance on who needs to test. I mean, I don't know where that is. I would have thought that would have been something that would have been decided how you deal with it. Because, Doc, you've been saying all along, and I have great respect for you, that, you know, this isn't going to be over till we have a vaccine. And we're not going to be able to really make significant changes in the three phases the president is talking about, or any phases, until we're able to test much more broadly. So when someone is comes back to work, they get tested before they walk in the door. So they're in a position, you know, that that all the folks you have working in that plant or working in that facility, I mean, I, I don't, I'm, 
and again, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doc, but I've been paying an awful lot of attention. And it just seems to me that these are things the president would have done had he taken responsibility early on. But now I think the Congress should pass the legislation and come up with something equivalent to creating a, uh, you know, a, uh, a pandemic testing board and give them the authority and get out of the way. One of the things the president that, that is. One of the things, uh, Mr. Vice President, is is people are starting to understand what at least normal could look like for a period of time until the vaccine, as you mentioned. Yep. Uh, large right. gatherings limited, uh, as you mentioned, temperature, even tests before going into work or a restaurant. People still wearing masks, perhaps when they go out in public. What do, what do you think the new normal should look like, Mr. Vice President? <laughs> Well, I think the new normal should look like until we have a vaccine that we take precautions, that we, in fact, continue to move in a direction where we try to figure out everybody who's gathering in a place of employment or in an area, even though they can have still have social distancing, to test them whether or not they are, in fact, infected or have been infected. If you can find that out and based on my discussions today, you're able to do that. But we don't have we don't have enough of all of the things that are needed, including, you know, the sourcing supplies, the insulin. I mean, a whole range of things that need to be done. I had a whole thing written down from my docs this morning talking about showing me how the tests function, the machines that are needed to 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 do the test. We talk about I heard earlier one of the govs saying we got plenty of machines. Well, you don't have plenty of machines in a lot of places. You don't have plenty of machines to be able to go out and, and take even the swabs that can be done. And, and, and you don't have the protective gear for people taking those swabs. I mean, it seems to me there ought to be something that focuses on how do you get as many tests done as possible to allow some elements of the economy, some elements of society, be able to get back to some sort of normal. I'm not talking about as... The president said the Alabama game with 100,000 people or something. I'm talking about just being able to, uh, you know, make sure that you're able to gather in relatively small groups, up to 30, 40 people in a restaurant that's separated and you're, you know, all your employees are tested, et cetera. I, I, I just, but I, testing seems to me to be a critical part of it. Hmm. And, and Mr. Vice President, you know, it seems to me that ultimately this balance, and I'm wondering how you think through this, just think through this issue. There's always going to be a balance between public health and wanting to get the, the country back up and running. No matter what we're hearing, once you start opening things up, Mr. Vice President, people are going to get infected. More people are going to get infected. Some may have to go to the hospital and some may sadly die. That will happen at any point before the vaccine is actually available. How, again, I don't, leaving aside specific numbers, how do you think through that in your own mind? How would you make those decisions? The way I think through that is I err on the side of caution. Look, we, I think it's a false choice to say you have to choose between the economy and our health. If you don't fix the health side of it, the economy is never going to get right. You're never going to be back in that place. You're never going to be at a place where you get to a remotely a, a, a new normal. And we have to get back ultimately to normal where people can gather. But that's going to take a while until you have the vaccine. In the meantime, there are, seems to me there are things you can do. 
there are certain jobs. For, for example, we talk about being able to, uh, uh, you know, have we want small businesses to be able to stay in business. Well, guess what? The really small mom and pop, until you can walk down Main Street and see all those stores or drive down and see all those stores roaming before from the coffee shop to the hairdresser to the barber shop to the nail salon to the hardware store. That's not that's what I mean by small business. I'm not talking about a five small business, technically 500 people or less. Well, we want them to do well, too. But if these little guys go out of business, they're out of business. I mean, they're not coming back, likely. And so I think we should think about how we deal with the economy in a different way. For example, I think we should do a situation like we did in the Recovery Act. And that is that instead of employers, if they're able to stay open, instead of being able to shut it, having to lay off employees, bring on everybody where they keep them working. They may have one person doing 50 percent of the job and another person doing another 50 percent. I think the federal government should just come in and make up the difference in the salaries. Just make up the difference to keep people employed. The most devastating thing a man or woman has to do is make what I call that longest walk up a short flight of stairs where the kids say, Daddy doesn't have a job. We don't have any income. We don't know what's going to happen. Things are in trouble. And so keep people on the payrolls and just have straight flat payment. A flat payment where the government pays half the salary of everybody on there. You can keep everybody doing half the work they were doing, but everybody stays employed. Mm -hmm. But that requires you to be in a position where you know the people you have inside whatever that facility building circumstance is, that they, in fact, have protective gear, but they also are have been tested. Mm -hmm. We know whether or not they are. They've had it or they are or, or, or they have it. And and uh, I just think it's uh, um, yeah. I, I think you got to err on the side of health, not on the side of the commerce side. But you got to take care of the little guy. I mean, the mom and pop operations. Mm. They're the yeah. heart and soul of communities. And well, when they go, they go. I want to bring in uh, just some uh, viewer questions if we can. Evan in Fairbanks, Alaska sure, sent, in, uh, sent in a video question for you. Let's listen. Despite your previous pledge to pick a woman for vice president, would you reconsider that for a qualified candidate who has performed admirably during this crisis, like Governor Cuomo? I think Governor Cuomo is capable of president. I think he's a great guy, but I think it's also important that uh, that to be a woman. I think it's important that we look. I want administration to look, and there's plenty of qualified, there's plenty of women with the experience and the capability of being president tomorrow. And I think it's important that we begin to have my administration, God willing, is going to look like America. And I really, I genuinely mean that. Not just, not, not just vice president, but making sure that we have a Supreme Court, we have a cabinet, we have a White House that looks like the country. And I think it really matters. And so I think it's really important that I, and there's plenty of qualified people who have the experience and background who are women are ready to be president on day one. I'm just going to stick with that. Mr. Vice President, uh, let's get to one more viewer question. We can. Scott Owens in Wisconsin sent in this video. Please take a look. Sure. The coronavirus will have a profound impact on our lives for years to come. Many people believe that very big New Deal type proposals will be needed in order to recover economically and to ensure the health and safety of all Americans. Are you willing to consider universal health care, basic income, and other ideas that Perhaps just a few months ago, you would have thought to be too ambitious or unnecessary. 
Well, I didn't think they were too ambitious. I thought that universal health care can be accomplished by providing a public option for Obamacare, significantly increasing the subsidies for Obamacare. It would cost a lot of money. It costs about $750 billion, but it would provide universal care for everyone and everyone with pre-existing conditions. And I also do think there's going to be a need. Look, you have a high entire generation of young people beginning back in, in 2000 when, when the, the attack occurred on 9-11 that in fact had been behind the eight ball from the time they got out of school, whether it was high school or college. We ended up in a situation where we had the Great Recession. People who had opportunities that would have otherwise been available to them for good paying jobs found themselves in real trouble. They did not, weren't able to get those jobs. They weren't available to them. They also had significant student debt. They found themselves, and now look what's happened. You have a whole generation of people between the ages of 18 and 30 who are going to be further put behind the, the, the eight ball here be there because this is going to provide look what's happening in terms of employment across the board. And so I think we have to look at it totally differently than we have before. And I think the way to get through this is we have to deal with stimulating the economy, but then we have to deal with recovery, recovery. And the way you deal with recovery is you think much bigger than we have before. It's like the New Deal. Think of every great act, every great change has taken place. It's come out of a crisis. It's come out of a crisis. Nobody, we worried about the elderly. We ended up with Social Security. We worried about labor. We ended up with more labor. We worried about a whole range of things. And what we did, we expanded opportunity. And I think we have an opportunity now to significantly change the mindset of the American people. Things they weren't ready to do, uh, you know, uh, even two, three years ago. They're now going, oh, my Lord, look at all those people out there making minimum wage or saving their lives. Look at all the people out there stocking the shelves. Look at all the people who are making sure that they're sanitizing the, the areas you go into. These are people who deserve to be treated better. I think you're going to see minimum wages going up. I think you're going to see the ability of us to provide for significant health care for every single American. I think you're going to see changes in education because the public realizes, holy mackerel, I didn't know this. It's like the band-aid's been ripped off. Mm. The systemic, you know, the systemic racism that exists, the systemic way in which we treat people who have not had the opportunity to get the education that they're entitled to. I think that's going to all change. I think it's going to build the economy. One mm. last thing. Look, Anderson, you and I have talked about this. We have an opportunity now to take in a recovery act, a real recovery, we can fundamentally change the science relating to global warming. And we can create, seriously, create 10 million good paying jobs. We can do it. It's within our power to do it. We can put in 550,000 charging stations along our highways. We can own the, the electric vehicle market. We can set up a transmission system across the country where we invest billions of dollars to do it so we can transfer across the country to every area of the, every area of the country, wind and solar energy, new battery technologies, all the things that are out there that are going to be able to provide people in organized labor, people who we are educating in terms of science and technology. I mean, there's so many opportunities. And I mm. think the country's going to be ready for it and going to need it. Mm. Vice President Biden, we appreciate your time. Thank you, Thank sir. You. I'm optimistic about this. I really am, guys. We're going to come out of this stronger. It's going to be hell getting out of it, though. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Vice President Biden. When we return, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Dr. Priscilla Chan of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, they're going to join us next.
After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned. Back to the CNN Global Town Hall. Before the break, we spoke with Democratic candidate for President Joe Biden about the role of the public sector in providing aid during the pandemic. We now want to turn to what the private sector can do. Joining us now are the founders of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Dr. Priscilla Chan, a pediatrician, and her husband, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg. Their initiative has provided millions to help facilitate the development of treatments, free testing, and education efforts to aid uh, uh, poor students most affected by, by school closures. Thanks so much for, for being with us. Um, Mark and, and Priscilla, I'm wondering just how are your lives changed in this pandemic? I assume like everyone else, you're, you're doing most things remotely. Yeah, we're yeah. working from home. Um, you know, it's kids it's, are at it's, home. It's a new experience just being right down the hall working from Priscilla. It's nice. Yeah, but uh, I, uh, we definitely miss um, miss our normal lives just like everyone else. I, I zoomed with you yesterday, which, by the way, was my first time ever zooming. Um, but uh, I, Mark had Priscilla, you told me Mark had just come in from gardening, and right before we went on air, now Mark said that you actually cut his hair. That's that's right. That is true. Yeah. That's you um, did a good job because I, I I was telling people I cut my hair last night and and gave myself a giant bald spot over here. So, well, thank you, Anderson. I think you might be the only person who's ever complimented my. <laughs> <laughs> you, you got you. You're both uh, parents to to your young children. I have I have uh, children as well. Millions of Americans are trying to balance right now uh, the working from home and parenting, and you want to spend more time with your family, but it can be challenging. Um, how is how is that part of things going? How do you how are you navigating that part of your life? Yeah, look at CZI, we're um, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. We're doing everything remotely, and children, dogs, family members walk into meetings all the time. That's just a normal part of that. Um, but sometimes you do need to take a quiet meeting, and um, Mark and I have been known to hide um, in corners um, to make sure that we can have the peace and quiet that we need to get some work done. So obviously right now, look, all states, all companies are trying to figure out how to move forward, you know, until there's a vaccine. Uh, I'm wondering, I know you have already announced some stuff for you, Mark, what is working at Facebook look like, you know, in the next year or two? Well, you know, I think it's clear that the return to work when it happens uh, will have to be, be done in a staggered way. And we're fortunate enough to be able to work productively from home, right? Software engineers uh, can do that. And as society begins to reopen, um, you know, we think it's important that we give right of way uh, to other types of businesses and people who um, who may not have the flexibility to work from home productively for their livelihood to make sure that they can get back to work first. So just today we announced uh, that the vast majority of Facebook employees should expect uh, that they're going to be required to work from home through at least the end of May and likely longer um, in order to make sure that that other people in our local communities um, can be the first to access the shared public resources and be, can be the first to get back to work. And um, I think we'll likely continue that philosophy. I don't know how long this will take for for uh, society to reopen, but I, I would imagine that we will um, be among the last back to work in order to make sure, uh, last back to the offices in order to make sure that others can get back first. And, and Priscilla, your foundation uh, focuses a lot on education. 
Uh, you have kids, as we just said. What about schools? Do you think they'll still be online this fall? And do you think there's any merit to that? I mean, you know, the idea of bricks and mortar education is something that we're very familiar with. But as we've gone to online, have there been some merits to that, do you think? Yeah, I think um, getting kids into a supportive educational environment is incredibly important. And right now, a lot of families are struggling with that. Um, what we're doing at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative through our investments in education is really thinking about that whole child. Um, for us, a quality education has always been thinking about a kid's holistic needs, not just reading and math. And now more than ever, ever we need social emotional supports we need abilities for kids to sort of explore their curiosity, their focus, their grit. Um, and a lot's happening. Not every household is the same. And um, they're, they're seeing a lot of challenges in their community, their families. Um, and some kids are seeing loss. And so that's going to be a lot for kids and schools to process over time. And whether or not we go back to school in September, um, I'm not the right person to guess at that. But what I do know is that kids will always need that mentor, that teacher in their life to help guide work, decisions, exploring. Um, and that can look a, a lot of different ways. Um, and we've always known it as a school. And we're, we as a society, we're going to have to think about this creatively as we get through the next uh, you know, few months of coronavirus. Mark, I saw something I think that, face, that you're going to do at Facebook. That I think you made an announcement that um, you're not going to have any meetings of, of more than uh, a certain number of people until 2021. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So as part of the staggered reopening of society, it's, it's not just going to be that some locations open before others. It's going to need to be that um, you know, some functions and, and some jobs can get done and others uh, we just wait longer to bring back online. And I think large events are probably going to be the last thing or at least one of the last things that comes back online. So we've gone ahead and made the policy call now um, that through June of 2021, uh, so next year, uh, we're not going to uh, we're not going to host any internal or external physical events that have 50 or more people in them. Hmm. Um, a lot of the events that we need to hold will just shift to be virtual online events. Um, but some of them, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll find other ways to do them or we'll just cancel them. Uh, but I think that, that doesn't mean that we won't be productive until then. Uh, but I do think that large events, you know, people going to sports events, uh, movie theaters, things like that are probably going to be uh, one of the last things that, that comes online as part of this reopening. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious, when, when you think about um, uh, providing accurate knowledge to, to people or helping do that, or at least not letting them get um, bad knowledge, this is this is a story where we've learned a lot along the way. I mean, the knowledge has sort of changed. Uh, you know, we we how just how communicable it is, uh, how lethal it is, how it's spreading. Should you wear masks? Should you not wear masks? Uh, all these types of things. When there's a lot of information out there, sometimes you know there's a lot of bad information as well. How, just how do you how do you approach thinking about that to make sure that the the right knowledge, at least what we know at the time, is what's getting out there. Yeah, so I think one of the most important functions that Facebook and, and our apps can do right now is help connect people with authoritative health information and experts, um, and at the same time to limit the spread of misinformation. So on the work that we're doing to uh, connect people with authoritative health information, um, we've actually directed more than 2 billion people 
um, to this COVID-19 information center uh, that we built, that we put at the top of the Facebook app for everyone. Um, and uh, through these educational pop-ups that we've put throughout the product, if you go search for information or, or if you show up in a group, for example, um, and of the 2 billion people that we've shown that to, mm. more than 350 million people have clicked through and, um, and spent some time on the, on the COVID information center. So that is, is valuable. It's showing information from health experts, um, from local government officials. Uh, it's, it's just, it's high quality content. Um, equally important is making sure that we limit the spread of misinformation. And there, uh, there are two basic policies that we have. One is um, if information, if someone's spreading something that puts people at imminent risk of physical harm, then we take that down. We don't allow that on Facebook um, at all. So, you know, for example, some people are trying to spread these complete hoaxes like, um, you know, if you uh, want to cure coronavirus, um, drink bleach, right? Obviously, that's that's a disaster. That's false and that's dangerous. So, you know, if someone tries to share that, we'll just take that down. And, um, and there have been a lot of pieces of content like that that we've taken down. Um, there are also other misinformation that may not lead to physical I imminent risk of physical harm, uh, but still isn't the type of stuff we want to be spreading through our system. And there we work with independent fact checkers. Um, and so far during this crisis, uh, those fact checkers have, have marked 4,000 pieces of content, um, individual articles false, which has led to us showing uh, warning labels to uh, more than 40 million times across our products when people come across something that's false. And the warning labels work. Now, we know that because 95% of the time um, when someone sees a piece of information um, that, that has a fact check on it, uh, they don't go through and consume that information. So mm. I think that overall, both of these sides of the equation, the showing authoritative information um, and limiting the spread of misinformation um, are incredibly important, especially so during a health crisis. And, um, and, you know, a lot of work has gone into this. We've gotten a yeah. lot better at this over the last few years as a company, and I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of the way that the team is, is working on this. You're also working on, on building disease prevention maps. And, and can you just explain, using all the data that you have access to, you, can, you, can you explain how that works and, and, and the, what it might be able to show and help people with? Sure. I think that this is going to be potentially a very important tool for uh, for governments and, and public health officials. So what we're doing is we're, we're running a widespread survey across Facebook, asking people um, what kind of symptoms they're feeling. Do you feel a fever? Do you have a cough, uh, shortness of breath? Have you lost your, your sense of smell? Um, and by asking those questions, and, and basically we're working with uh, academics uh, at Carnegie Mellon University to start. So, um, so all the information goes to them. We're not collecting health information about people. Um, but through the survey, we're then able to produce a county by county map across the country um, of the prevalence of, of disease and people with symptoms. And I think that this is just going to be quite valuable um, for local governments uh, and, and health officials to get a sense of what's happening in their area and what's about to happen because people report feeling symptoms um, days before they would actually feel like they need to go get tested or would show up in the hospital or develop um, some of the more severe side effects of, of, of COVID. So this can help give people a leading indicator of what's happening, which can help plan uh, the near-term public health uh, response, help allocate uh, scarce resources, whether it's uh, masks or ventilators. Uh, but then over the coming weeks and months, it'll also help uh, local governments figure out how they should be opening up uh, their 
uh, when it's going to be safe to, to start opening and, and having people um, come back into society, or if something starts going wrong and there's a recurrence, um, when they might need to re restrict things further again until it gets back under control. And Priscilla, through the, the, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, you're also redirecting a lot of efforts to coronavirus. Yeah. So, you know, Mark, the study uh, that Mark's talking about through Facebook is an awesome example of sentinel testing where you get the early signs. But um, also important is the ability for individual patients to know that they actually have coronavirus and if they've been infected with coronavirus in the past. Hmm. And policymakers are also going to want to know how what's the incidence? How many cases of coronavirus are in my area now? And those are all questions that were the scientific community is trying to figure out. But uh, at CZI, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, we've been working on science for about four years now um, with the aim of building great infrastructure for scientists so that we can cure, prevent, and manage all disease by the end of the century. Obviously, coronavirus is an awful hit to um, uh, us globally. And so what we've done is actually reorient a number of resources, including the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, where we invested $600 million for over 10 years for research. And in March, when we realized that testing, um, then the first step being individual testing was necessary, we uh, turned that lab around, equipment, um, leaders, grad students, volunteers, um, faculty members into uh, a certified uh, laboratory to test uh, for coronavirus. And within eight days, we got, uh, we got up to a capacity of 1,000 tests a day. Hmm. So wow. that was really ex um, awesome to be able to serve our community that way. Um, and when we realized that we had more capacity, we've um, now, as of today, made testing free to all departments of public health in California. That's awesome. Yeah. There's um, also an interesting nuance yeah. there um, around um, because they are a established scientific um, lab in addition to a testing center. They're both testing whether or not an individual has um, coronavirus. And then they're taking the, um, the positives and then doing a full genome sequence of the coronavirus positive test. And they look for tiny mutations in the coronavirus sequence that allows the scientists to sort of back calculate how many other unknown cases there are in a community. And so there's that's just the tip of sort of what these amazing scientists, Joe DeRisi, Steve Quake, and others at the Biohub, and then many more across UCSF, Stanford, are trying to, to get to that question that we all need to know, how many cases are there out there so that we can go back to work as a society. Yeah. yeah so the team over there has done really impressive yeah. work. I mean, it's basically I mean, we built up all this technology to use for long term research. And I mean, like Priscilla said, within days or weeks, I mean, basically the team repurposed it and said, hey, yeah, that long term research is really important. But um, but right now we need to make sure that we can use all this equipment to, to help with testing and, and to help out with the acute response to the health crisis in the Bay Area. Um, so it's uh, I mean, I've been really proud of them. Yeah, I mean, testing obviously is at the heart of moving forward uh, from from where we're at right now. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Dr. Priscilla Chan, thank you so much. Really appreciate you uh, you thank being you. with us. Fascinating what you're doing. Thanks for having us. Yeah, appreciate all your efforts. Up next, we're going to take a look at the psychological uh, impact of the pandemic. Your questions and some answers from uh, psychiatrists. We'll be right back. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. 
CNN's Global Town Hall. We'll get answers to more of your coronavirus questions ahead. A reminder, at the bottom of your screen, you'll see our social media scroll that shows uh, the questions that uh, a lot of people are asking. You can tweet us your questions with the hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. There's really no question that the psychological impact of physical distancing, the anxiety that all of us are experiencing for a variety of reasons, is a key part of the ongoing pandemic. So we want to bring back in Dr. Uh, psychiatrist, Dr. Christine uh, Moutier. It's good to see you. Thanks for being with us. Um, you know, obviously the headlines, the stories behind the headlines continue to be devastating. So many, you know, lives lost. W what do you think, what's your advice for people just sort of, I don't know what the word is, uh, just dealing with the, the trauma, the grief, you know, especially when, when isolated physically? Yes, right now there is a wave of grief that so many of us are experiencing and there are different types of losses. And and I would just, I think it helps all of us when we know how to set our course a little bit, like how to set expectations. And, and it's also really important to not minimize your loss because it doesn't seem as, as huge as somebody else's. Loss is loss. And, and Grief is a real and very painful experience, and it's really important to acknowledge that, to understand that it's not a linear experience, and that's okay. It will come in waves of intensity. It will kind of circle back around at times. There are triggers um, for memories, and, and all of that is a normal part of the grieving process. And in fact, grief is a universal human experience. And the, the one other thing I would say about it is that if you're someone who knows somebody who's experienced a loss and you feel like you don't really have a way to support them or relate to them, the main thing is don't avoid them. Reach out to them and with expressions of love and caring and support, just like you would at any other time. We can do that remotely. And don't assume that just because you're not going through the same thing that you, know, that you can't do that. We, we all have a role to play with supporting each other right now. Mm. Dr. Mattia, you know, it's, it seems like there's um, a, a lot of whiplash right now. Uh, pe people are hearing uh, the conversation about the country reopening as soon as possible. Everybody wants that, obviously. At the same time, there was a study that was uh, got a lot of attention saying we might have to do some intermittent social distancing at least until 2022. I mean, those are very, and for a lot of people, that's just conflicting messages. That's what people are hearing. How do you suggest they deal with that? To me, it still taps into the same issue that we've been challenged with this whole time, which is being faced with uncertainty. And it, it just feels uncomfortable. Again, we like to set our course and have a sense of power and control. Now, the truth is, even during our normal lives outside of this COVID moment, there are lots of things that are uncertain and many things that are well outside of our control. And so there are things within our control right now. And it's a time when I think just reflecting on what can we control and what is outside our control. And so let's just move towards those things that we can start planning for and um, to help ourselves you know, take action and feel present in this moment. Those are the strategies that we can do and that we do have control over. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot of uh, viewer interest, obviously, a lot of questions. Uh, this is a question that came in via Twitter. Uh, it's there on the social media scroll. It reads, what medical advice is suggested for addict alcoholics and relapses during isolation? Right. Well, the first thing to realize about addiction is that it is a disease of the brain. It's a health condition 
like any other health condition. So the main thing is try to get out of the seat of judgment and assuming that you're just weak or making bad choices. It is an illness. There's treatment available even during this moment. And I would urge people to look for virtual ways to connect with a support group, 12-step group, a sponsor. And um, on the SAMHSA webpage, there is a treatment finder where you can um, learn more about where treatment services are available for substance use problems. I, I read a report I think came out today that says anti-anxiety medication prescriptions are up 34 percent between February and March, and, and that, that is nearly twice as high for women as compared to men. Have you ever seen a, a spike like that? Um, yes, there there have been times, um, as we know in our society, when we've been faced with tremendously stressful natural disasters, um, wartime, many, many sort of assaults to our life as usual, and this is certainly one of them. So it doesn't surprise me in the sense that we know that stress and anxiety, sense of isolation, for some people depression, all of those things are natural human struggles and they're part of our mental health. And it is a good thing to seek treatment for all of those kinds of issues. I think the gender difference, um, you can think about the fact that there are some gender differences between anxiety disorders and, and also for depression between, um, you know, the prevalence for women being greater than men. Mm. But it's also true that women tend to be the healthcare brokers of the family, meaning we will advocate for our own and our loved one's health needs. And so it's, it's not necessarily indicative of men not feeling every bit as stressed and anxious right now. Dr. Moutier, um, yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Always, always great Thank to hear you. from you. Great to have you. Yeah. Thanks. And beyond the resources uh, just mentioned, CNN also has a page of resources uh, as well. You can see that web address right there on your screen. We'll be right back. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. A lot of you have asked about how you can help those affected by coronavirus. You can do that now by going to CNN.com slash coronavirus, how to help. There are categories there to search for suggestions of organizations that you can contribute to and how you can even get help for yourself. You can also go to CNN.com slash impact. Uh, Sanjay, thanks so much. Our seventh uh, town hall. Really yeah. appreciate it. Also, thanks for the to... smile tonight, Diane Anderson, by showing me your, uh, your my, good haircut. My, yes, my, my bold spot. Yes, yeah. I did it to myself. Nobody, <laughs> nobody but myself to blame. Uh, we want to thank uh, Dr. Deborah Burks, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Dr. Priscilla Chen, and Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden. Also, thanks to all those of you who wrote in with your questions, to everyone else who joined us tonight. If you didn't get your question answered, I know there's a lot of questions that don't get answered. The conversation continues at CNN.com slash coronavirus answers. We are all in this together. And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 